This is episode number 118 of the Rising Man podcast with Stephen Jenkinson. Dying is active. Dying is not what happens to you. Dying is what you do. Blessings and good rising family. Jetty Azuma here bringing you another amazing installment of the Rising Man podcast. If this is our first time meeting, then let me introduce myself as the host of this podcast and the founder of the Rising Man movement. Our mission is to initiate an entire generation of men, period. That's what we're about here. We believe that this is how we as men can make our greatest impact on the future of humanity. But we can't do it alone. It's not possible without community. It's not possible without creating a new sense of culture. So before we start our conversation today, I want to make sure I remind you guys, like I do every week, of how you can become a bigger part of the Rising Man family. All the Rising Man content, events, and information is over at risingman.org, so go check it out today. If you're a man without a men's circle, if you don't have a community of men who hold you accountable, then don't wait. Don't wait for that to come to you. Join us inside the Rising Man Fire Circle and get access to your own men's team, monthly training sessions with me, guest presenters, and so much more. If you're looking for men's initiations, gatherings, and trainings that will prepare you to be the man you've always wanted to be, then check out this and all of our other offerings at risingman.org. All right, my guest for today is the illustrious Stephen Jenkinson. He's a culture activist, teacher, and author. Stephen teaches internationally and is the creator and principal instructor of the Orphan Wisdom School, co-founded with Natalie Roy in 2010. It might be Wa, Ra, Roy, or Wa. I don't know if I pronounced that properly. He has master's degrees from Harvard University in theology and the University of Toronto in social work. He apprenticed to a master storyteller when he was a young man and has worked extensively with dying people and their families. Since co-founding Nights of Grief and Mystery with Gregory Hoskins in 2015, he's toured this musical tent show revival storytelling ceremony of a show across North America, the UK and Europe, and Australia and New Zealand. He's the author of Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble, the award-winning Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul, and many other compelling texts. He's also the subject of the feature-length documentary film Griefwalker, a portrait of his work with dying people, and Lost Nation Road, a shorter documentary on the crafting of the Knights of Grief and Mystery Tour. This was an amazing conversation, truly humbling to be able to sit down with Stephen. He's what I consider a master and, and a wise, wise elder in this field of work. In this episode, we discussed ancestorlessness in the modern world. What is the impact of not being connected to those who came before us and gave us life? And how can we create a connection to our lineage if we don't know our family history? Why is our relationship with death so fear-based and avoidant? And what does it look like to die well? We spoke about welcoming death and being hospitable so we can build a relationship with death. For death is honest and dependable. It always comes knocking. And lastly, we talked about humbling ourselves as a people because we often have a high and hollow opinion of ourselves, in Stephen's words. Why we've replaced pride where our heart used to be. Really, really amazing conversation. We talked about this and so much more, but I'll leave that to Stephen to explain. Without further ado, Stephen Jenkinson. All right, folks, I've got a real treat for you guys today. A man with a wealth of knowledge and wisdom and information here with us today, Mr. Stephen Jenkinson, coming in live from Oaxaca. Good to have you here, my friend. 
Thank you. Very kind of you to extend the invitation. Let's see if I got anything worth listening to. <laughs> well, I'm certain that you do. And obviously, uh, the folks learned a little bit about you in the introduction, but perhaps you could just give us a brief description of your work and your perspective on on death and the elderly at this stage of your life? Well, man, I mean, self-introductions are for people who are unsure of themselves, it seems to me. I usually don't take that <laughs> on, but but you sound kind. And so let me see if I can cooperate. <laughs> In no particular order, I was lucky enough to be gathered into what I call the death trade, which I think is absolutely the most legitimate, authentic, and transparent way of referring to that line of work. And I thought I was there to help people die. And I quickly discovered that nobody wanted any help in dying. They wanted all kinds of help in not dying. And that just wasn't patients and families, I should say. So, you know, I was, I didn't even know the, the practice area existed, to be honest, before I went in it. So needless to say, I had no, quote, training. And it turns out that in my case, that was a very lucky thing. Because minus the training, I was also minus many of the categorical imperatives and prejudices that are manifest in that line of work. It didn't make me a superior person in any way, not then, not now. But it did mean that whatever I had to get over, I wasn't sharing with most of the practitioners around me. And my kind of outlier status worked to my benefit in the short term because I'm a bit of a self-starter, as they call it. So I could, I could function in a, in a circumstance of benign administrative neglect. And that's what I had. So I got, you could say I got away with a lot if you're being unkind, or you could say, you know, I had, I had enough room to move. And in the time allotted to me, I moved. And when it came to rack and ruin, as it would inevitably be going to do when I started dictating the professional practice of doctors as a non-physician, you know that's a time-limited arrangement. And mm -hmm. before it was all over, I got the lay of the land very well in my country, Canada, and I got the chance to travel. It was a real privilege to travel and teach and, and, and lament, you know, in all corners of the world at that time. So this gave me a bit of a, a window as people would come up to me in their twos and their fives and, and whisper confessions about how in their country it was at least as bad as what I was talking about and so on. And uh, all of these things afforded me the opportunity when, when leisure was forced upon me by my termination. I wondered, well, no, I'll, t I'll tell you that I'll tell you an honest story. I don't, I don't tell this very often, but so there I was with no job and I, I suffer in a pulmonary way in the wintertime in my country. It's just, it's come to this in my life that, that winter and me have probably parted ways and we're not likely to meet each other again, at least not voluntarily. So one particular year, I'm going to guess it was about six years ago now. It was particularly bad and it was becoming abundantly clear to me that I might not clear this particular hurdle. Because I knew what the signs were, you know, and I knew what being able to bounce back looked like. And when you're talking about your lungs, there's not a lot of wiggle room. You know, once they start to give way, repairing them is basically out of the question. So, and I'd never smoked a day in my life, but there it is. You know, life is a lot of things, but apparently fair is not typically one of them. Hmm. So I was literally sitting on a rooftop, flat rooftop in this small village in Mexico, taking whatever particular solace I could take from the heat. And, and counting my days, probably, and wondering what I, I should give them to, because I'd had a lot of practice in asking this question, you know, of other people. And so suddenly it was my turn. I, I hope this doesn't sound intemperate in any way or un-Canadian, but I had the idea that 
there would be people who would seek out my wife when the news of my demise became public and ask for a little more, you know, is there a little more? Did he leave something in the closet? Did he, you know, is there more stuff? Is there more, are there interviews, whatever it was. And I thought to myself, well, that's not what anybody should be doing at a time like that. Is there anything I can do? And, and I put, I picked up a pen and started to write in a book. And six weeks later, I had written Die Wise, which was my attempt to head that situation off at the pass so that she could just say, well, here, this is, this is what he meant when the chips were down, basically. And as you can see, my self-diagnosis was a little off, so I'm still here and still at it, although I am in another, a, war- a warm place again because those circumstances haven't changed. And I'm writing a new book now about uh, matrimony. And in between hmm. the dying book and the marrying book, I wrote a book about elderhood and agedness and wisdom. And the subtitle of that, if I remember right, was The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. And that kind of gives you, well, I guess I got four books out now. I'll finish with this observation. The first one was about called Money and the Soul's Desires. And that was an attempt to understand what's going on with the fact that so many people who claim a kind of spiritual orientation have a real antagonized relationship with money. And vice versa, you know, moneyed people have an antagonized relationship with so-called things of the spirit. So I wondered about that. That was the first one. And then Die Wise, as I told you, and then the book about elderhood. And now this thing about matrimony. I don't know that there's anything left for me to talk about when I get this matrimony done, because that, that covers a lot of bases. So, uh, <laughs> so somewhere in sure there, does. it sure does. And somewhere in there, I, I took on a kind of a temporary but pervasive kind of public life which I never sought out at all. And Mystery of Mysteries, I have a band. And we have a <laughs> tour planned for this very year. We're going to be playing on four continents. It's, it remains to be seen if anything of the tour <laughs> will survive. Wow. The pestilence we'll have to see. But I've taken everything I just told you about and converted it into a kind of a story, story evening, a jet fueled by a rock band, if you can picture those two things together. And uh, it's, we've we got one record out. We just finished taping, recording, recording? Yeah. second record, which will probably be a double LP, partly live and partly studio stuff that probably be coming out wow. in June or so. So I'm 65 and I didn't get the memo of cool, about cooling out at this point. <laughs> so it, it is a time. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I love that. I really appreciate, especially seeing men in your stage and season of life who aren't slowing down, but are really squeezing every last bit of juice out of the berry that you possibly can. And from what I can hear in the tone of your voice and also what I've witnessed in seeing some of the content that's covering you out there, you really seem to be enjoying your your journey and, and what you're creating. Oh, yeah. Would you say that it's a joyful process? At times. <laughs> and it's an awful process at times too, as long as we remember that joyful means full of joy and awful means full of awe. And I'm certainly that many times. I'm kind of bewildered by what's become of me since so little of it is really self-directed, no matter what we in North America say to ourselves. The truth of the matter is that you're playing catch up to your own life, right? And very occasionally, <laughs> if you're lucky, you can feel the index finger of God in your nostril pulling you. And that's how I understand my self-direction. It's mostly involuntary following along with this kind of a mandate that has come to claim my attention span. Wow. 
Beautiful perspectives. And I've got so many questions I want to ask you, yeah. but the first one I'm going to start with is a question that I've, I've asked hundreds of men at this point, because okay. I'm really curious about the variety of responses and also the common threads that I find as well. And that question is, what is the difference between a boy and a man? In North America, uh, virtually nothing. Mm. It's a wretched observation to have to make. But we're not talking about some kind of ideal when you're asking me a question like that or, or some kind of notion or a belief system. You're talking about an on-the-ground reality, an observable reality. And the reality is, seems to me at least, that manhood is unattainable in the presence of an ongoing, unvanquished, unchallenged childhood that reaches deep into middle age. And these are the circumstances that we labor under. In the death trade, I I don't know how many people it was, hundreds and hundreds, and I saw them to death's door. I can tell you there's a distinction you should properly make between how a child dies and how an alleged adult dies. And you'd be stunned if you were with me to see the expectations you'd have of one group over the other. You actually have to reverse. So the kids Mm. up to a certain age, I'm going to say arbitrarily nine or 10, those kids would die kind of mystified. And of course, sad at some level, for sure, but they they didn't die with a kind of toxic level of grievance about the gross injustice of the circumstance. Virtually none of them did. The reason for that is that all of them had a sense that they had had a full life at the age of seven or eight years old. It doesn't mean it foreclosed on other things that could have happened and now won't, but it did mean that they hadn't learned yet there's a thing called your potential life, which turns out when you're dying to be more valuable than the life you actually got. And I can't Mm -hmm. describe a tragedy more profound than that circumstance. So you know what I'm going to say to you about older people? They learned the priority of the potential life very deeply and thoroughly. And when they were dying, they were full of grudge against the deal for everything they weren't going to get to do or didn't get to do or whatever it was. That circumstance is as much a wicked snapshot of the answer to the question you've asked me as anything I can think of. More practically speaking, you could, I would venture this possibility. Manhood is something that you have to be able to lean upon as a culture, not just employ it, although that's important too, but you have to be able to rely upon it. The nature of manhood seems to me to be fundamentally informed by an understanding of service not servitude, okay, that's a different category of misery, but service, absolutely, certainly. We can understand it this way. Where does your manhood come from? Does it come from what your birth certificate says? Obviously not. Does it come from what people around you say about you and to you and because of you? Yes, that's getting there. And does the meaning of your life derive from the understanding that the people around you have of what you've been and who you've been and why? instead of what you say about it, and that you exercise a minor league authority in the meaning of your own days. Absolutely, I would say. And so your manhood actually is conferred upon you by that sequence of recognitions that in a real living culture and a real sort of village-minded circumstance, your manhood would be conferred upon you in the same way that your name changes over the course of your life, perhaps three or four times, to recognize the fundamental movements that your life has witnessed, the achievements, of course, that you've been able to pull off, and also perhaps the things left to you that could all show up in a name. It's very difficult to translate Bob or Tim 
in those terms anymore. Most of our names literally mean nothing, right? Which is in itself a sad business. So all of that is to say that while childhood is an inevitable consequence of being born and making it through the birth canal and, you know, unto the age of majority or puberty, manhood, there's nothing inevitable about it at all. Manhood is a kind of achieved status that is, can only be conferred upon you. And it has to be conferred mm-hmm. upon you by, you guessed it, men, not exclusively, but fundamentally, because men will recognize the context and, and the depths of manhood in a way that nobody else could. So if you back up the situation and you don't have rites of passage that end childhood properly and, and cue the possibilities of manhood, and you don't accentuate the aspect of service that I indicated earlier, and there is no community there's no village to, quote, serve and actively employ your manhood in serving, then you, you have a protracted kind of miserable adolescence that, that is only about self-direction and self-service and self-description and ultimately self-deception to a great extent. I mean, the poverties of our circumstance, and at this point, anybody's listening saying, okay, 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 what about <laughs> the rest of it? Well, that's the rest of it, man. You know, the exceptions, God bless them, can take care of themselves, and thank God they're there. But I'm not describing a circumstance that's exceptional. I think I'm describing a circumstance that's observable and that pertains and shows no sign of going anywhere voluntarily. Last thing I'll Mm -hmm. say about it is childhood, it seems to me, is like any other living thing. It won't stop because it's, quote, not working out. Childhood has to be ended, right? It, it doesn't end of its own accord. Yeah. So in that yeah, sense, well, it's, like, it's like any marriage that ought not to continue, right? That thing's not going to end by itself. And it takes remarkable actions of courage or a lethal lawyer to bring it to an end, doesn't it? And childhood requires something of the same kind of compassionate understanding that it's not going to just say, well, I've had my allotment here of 12 point something years and... Uh, and uh, it's been a real slice. And if there's no questions, uh, I'm heading off to the, you know, to the great <laughs> childhood in the sky. It's not going to, it doesn't do that clearly. So it has to be ended. And if you don't have a culture that's willing to, to take that work upon itself, I'm not sure that manhood is really any purchase in that circumstance. And I would agree with you wholeheartedly. In fact, that's a very well-articulated version of the conversation we tend to have on this show. We talk a lot about rites of passage and are you familiar with Bill Plotkin? Do you know I've Bill Plotkin the, and his seen work? The name, that's all. Okay. He so he reference he speaks a lot about rites of passage. He has a background in family marriage therapist, mm-hmm. but also a rites of passage guide. And he's he's written a couple of books and he references the bottleneck that occurs in adolescence in a society where we don't have initiated men mm. who are then there to initiate the boys across mm. that threshold. Mm. So it's it's an essential part of the work that that I'm stepping into and that I notice many others are seeing mm-hmm. and really acknowledging as a problem for the first time. I don't know how far back it goes. I imagine it, it has to do with colonialism and, and even colonization in a modern way, but it's very apparent that there's an absence and a void of rites of passage, of an acknowledgement of, like you said, the conclusion of childhood and the beginning of adulthood or whatever we want to call it, 
whatever whatever comes next. Mm-hmm. And I also noticed that you referenced, you, you said specifically here in North America when you were giving your response about the difference between a boy and a man. Mm-hmm. Do you see it different in other parts of the world or are you saying more like modern first world types of countries? Well, we're contending with something now, which might be unprecedented. Some people call it the Anthropocene era and there's other names for it. Some people call it a kind of globalized kind of world psychic economy. I guess I call it that since I haven't heard anybody else say it that way. And and it's very clear that that thing exists. The thing that you and I are talking on is one of the principal culprits of globalization, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And globalization is a war against specificity. It's a war against indigenousity of any kind, not, not just racial, but any kind, linguistic, you know, psychic, spiritual, religious, and so forth. And and we're deep into it now. It's not just in the beginning stages. Mm. My understanding of the consequence is, as a member of the dominant culture of North America, which I think you and I reasonably are, whether we're willing to be or not, we are, the consequences that vector out from us when we travel, especially when we go looking for those exceptional places, tend to be this. Those exceptional places are the first casualty of us going there to look for them. Mm. I was teaching in Bali some years ago, and the room was maybe half expats from Australia and New Zealand, as you'd expect. That's their playground. And, um, and I was talking about the dying stuff that was the subject of the evening. And I ended this way. I said, now look, I can see a lot of you from the stage here. And many of you have my complexion, although you're more sunburnt than I am. And, hmm. uh, and I think we could acknowledge this. You love this place in some fashion or other. At least you say that you do. This is true. Most of them allowed it that they did. I said, okay, so I don't know if this comes as news to you, but you'll be dead pretty pretty soon, just judging by looking at you. You just will. Me too. Although many of you will be dead probably a little sooner than me, if statistics hold. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you really love this place, you better go home to die. And I tell you, man, the reaction against me when I said that was exceptional and very memorable, as you can tell. And um, what does it say? It says that There's no willingness to recognize the consequences you visit upon a place when you're seeking some kind of refuge from the place that's yours, Mm. right? That that birth, the accidents of birth granted you. In my case, the accidents of birth put me on the north side of what they call a medicine line. So I'm in a country they call for the moment Canada. And I'm an enormous beneficiary of that. And I'm, you know, I remain deeply grateful for the benefits that accrue, but those benefits are expensive. Okay. And the expenses they branch out into the areas that you and I are talking about now. So in a fixed economy, which is what a global economy is, those places that are doing very well are doing so at the expense of places that are not. And you could take the the kind of economic understanding of that and apply it psychically and spiritually, and you'd come to a very similar conclusion that our, our psychic comforts are very expensive indeed, that we're not worried about our daily bread, for example, well, maybe these days as the... Uh, People shop till the cows come home, which is what any consumer does in a time of trouble. Isn't it bizarre that everybody's buying toilet paper of all the things they could stock up, stock up on? I mean, it, I it tells you something about toilet training and what it does to people later on in life. It's fascinating. It's just yeah. astounding. But anyway, so yeah, I know this is a bit long-winded and, and, and it covers a bit of waterfront, but I guess the thrust of what I'm saying to you is that we have an obligation. If we're aware of places that are saner on certain matters than we are, as to not mine that place for their sanity. 
we simply should indicate some kind of posture of enormous gratitude that it's in the world, that it stands as some, as some kind of almost unapproachable example for us. And the accidents of birth confer upon us our responsibility, excuse my language, to stay the fuck home and do the work that our home circumstance asks of us now. Because we've been beneficiaries in this world, have we not, for several hundreds of years, and we have a few things to answer for, though me and my generation or you and yours might not be the principal culprits, we know we're the principal beneficiaries. There's no doubt of that. So we might start behaving like we're accidental beneficiaries of a system that did a lot of harm to a lot of people and continues to do so. So then you have to translate, what does that look like? What is the work? And that goes back to the manhood question. Mm-hmm. The manhood question includes, in a time of trouble, what is deeply informed masculine responsibility begin to look like? And I don't think it includes, you know, hitting up some ayahuasca because it's in your hemisphere. Yeah. Yeah, man. Wow. I, I really appreciate the way that you said that because it's a conversation that I've had in, I, I don't know, I say the past five to seven years. My wife and I are married almost six years now. And remember when we met, I was f- still very full of idealism, mm. but also a bit jaded at the state of, of the world and how it looked. And I, I was part of a community of people that were wanted to stay together and felt this intuitive draw to live amongst each other mm. and support one another. And uh, I guess a, a return to what what I would call a village mindset, mm-hmm. and the the conversation ultimately digressed into well, where 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 would where do we do this? Mm-hmm. And you know, there's conversations about different parts of the United States, and inevitably it was well, maybe we should just get at it here because this place is fucked to begin with. So let's go somewhere where we can kind of start over. Yeah. And I'm just I'm just c- comparing my my thought process now. And based on what you said and where I was back then, that there was a lot of that escapism that I think was very much reflective of a more childish mindset and, and a boyish mentality of chasing the comforts and chasing the ease instead of anchoring myself home and rooting myself and doing the work. So I, it's a great point that you bring up. And I really appreciate that because we are the beneficiaries of a lot of choices and decisions that our ancestors made. And it, it does, it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder how we will find our way out of this or what it will look like if we don't start to reorient ourselves in a way that's conducive to what the planet wants and what the planet needs. There's a phrase that I heard in one of the talks you were giving, you, you said ancestorlessness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's a problem that most of us here in the Western hemisphere who've come from, who have any sort of European or African descent, that that seems to be a real problem for people, especially men that I work with now, when they can't name more than one or two generations back of ancestors and have no idea what stories they come from. I see that as a huge problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you have a lot more to say about that because I'm, I'm very interested. Well, I think the word ancestorless is a, is a term that at first blush, most people thinking about it for the first time would say there's no such thing. How could, you can't possibly be ancestorless And why not? Well, because ancestors are inevitable, meaning Mm. that if you're standing here and you're drawing breath, you had them, you see, and you still do. And apparently you always will. Now, if that's true, if, if the condition of being ancestored, let's put it that way, is inalienable, 
it's just a fact of life as a as a living human then it means as it as every inevitable thing does in our way of life it means you don't have to do anything there's no work to be done right there's no merit that attaches itself to it it's no achievement of any kind because it's inevitably occurring it's like i don't know it's like your hair or something is just that's it just part of the package and no reciprocal obligation of any sort that crosses back and forth across the line of death and life and and you know and the further back you go as you say the less alertness there is you begin you know in a new age context you begin to use the word the ancestors this really riles me up this phrase why is that well because you just think grammatically what it means when you say the ancestors first of all you're making the, a, a kind of gesture towards imagining them in some kind of exalted state or condition without examining the real possibility that the consequences of all this neglect don't just rest upon us it may mm-hmm. rest upon them as well in the present tense but that doesn't even enter into it right because we're talking about the ancestors we're having our grief ritual out in the backyard we're burying shit under the grass or whatever it is you know burning mm-hmm. stuff whatever it is and mm-hmm. we know i mean let's be candid man we know that the whole operation is cathartic and is designed to be good to us and to make us feel better or feel more and do something with our grief etc and so on etc and the the notion that there are consequences that we don't intend that vector out beyond our little backyard circumstances and have consequences for these people we call the ancestors is never even part of the ceremony well this is what ceremonial poverty looks like you know uh, that's the first thing second thing is there's no such thing as the ancestors here's why what makes an ancestor the only answer that can hold water it seems to me is well there are people who follow you who claim you as such it's the act of being claimed that makes you an ancestor not the fact that you're dead the the role that you that you begin to occupy in the present circumstances that's what makes you an ancestor and so by definition it's the living that make ancestors it's not death it's the living and their willingness to claim ancestors and live accordingly and you know obey whatever the culturally specific dictates of the whole thing is if you say the ancestors you're confessing something and it includes you don't know what i just said it's not there at all you think they're inevitably there there's only a such a thing as your ancestors or my ancestors or theirs or hers or his you see what i'm saying in other words you have to have the personal pronoun there somehow because without it you have lifeless bits of nostalgia you know floating around in a kind of cinder cloud of anxiety which is the modern period so mm-hmm. imagine the work that needs to be done to begin to address the circumstance you just described where there's a kind of magical thinking because whatever his name is Elon Musk is going to bring us to Mars so that'll be okay he's taking care of our shit so we don't have to worry and and they're working on the mortality pill right so we can be immortal according to our choosing and until that time well we have legal recourse to euthanasia if it doesn't work out and holy shit your mind starts to just reel at the sort of demonstrable vacuousness of of the deal right mm-hmm. okay yeah. so all of this all of this is to say that ancestors need something from us to become ancestors they're not automatic 
And in that sense, they're like your musculature. You don't draw upon it. It will not be there when you need to. Mm. It's very thought provoking for me to hear you to hear you share that this notion of ancestors has been a really, really prominent thematic for me, especially in the past couple of years. Mm. Uh, I've had the privilege of connecting with some really close friends down from down in New Zealand, uh, Maori, mm. and they can name their ancestors sometimes 16 to 20 generations back. Yeah, which, they got them tattooed on their legs and stuff too. Yeah. Exactly. And mm. this, so this tradition of storytelling and keeping one's ancestors alive and honoring them in that way, because that's the only reason that we're here in the first place is mm. by choices that they made, good or bad, whatever you want to call it. Mm. You know, it was interesting what it evoked in me because I'm also the product of immigration two and three generations back. My, my dad's side of the family's from Japan. My uh, mother's side of the family's from Italy in the, middle, in the Middle East. And so beyond the relatives and my ancestors who came here, there's so, there's so much story that I just don't know. It's like that, that break in the chain that caused this ancestorlessness to occur for so many of us. I, for me, it evoked a lot of shame. I feel ashamed that I don't know more about my ancestors. Mm. And so when you talk about claiming one's ancestors and giving them life, it reminds me of the Mexican traditions around Dia de los Muertos and uh, making an ofrenda and that keeping their pictures and their likenesses there to mm. keep their memory alive. I, don't, I wouldn't even know where to begin. And I know that I'm not alone because I've had this conversation with so many of my contemporaries that mm. I say, I ask them, I, I'll, I'll go to an event that I'm facilitating and I want to bring in something about ancestors. I'll say, okay, how many of you guys know your parents? Mm. How many of you know your grandparents? By the time I get to great grandparents, there's maybe a couple of hands in a room of 50 to hundred people. Sure. And after that, nobody. Forget it. Yeah. You know? So oftentimes the way I speak about it is, well, we can't, we can't really do too much to rediscover that. Maybe with this 23andMe and this Ancestry.com, we can learn a little bit more about where we came from biologically. But as far as genuine storytelling and, and keeping memories of ancestors alive, mm -hmm. the only thing we can really do about it is how we conduct ourselves now. How I, with my two children, tell them about all the ancestors that I know mm -hmm. and, and, and reinforce with them the importance of that to recreate a culture that... A lot of, for a lot of us was lost when we when we when our ancestors traveled over to this the the Americas was forfeited actually is a better way to say it I think mm, forfeited rather than lost yeah. lost is a little not only impersonal but it's a little passive like you didn't do anything it just kind of shit happened kind of shrug you know but forfeited means at some level you knew you were trading it in for quote unquote a better a better shot at the prize right that was the deal. Mm. But I want to go back right. to something you said a couple of minutes ago, because you made a really fine distinction between what you call authentic storytelling and the material that's available to you on Ancestry.com. That's a really important distinction to make. The other thing I'm going to mention is you use the word shame. And, you know, as soon as you said it, I, I saw it in almost in a visual field of, you know, that shame goes right to the first question you asked me mm. about manhood. And, mm. and when you can't operate in the presence of your ancestors, generations deep, there's some deep compromise to your capacity to feel like a three-dimensional masculine human being. Straight up, no qualification. It's a real compromise. So, so you, I think you're absolutely right that, that this idea that you can get a hit of kind of a genetic material derived 
you know, allegations of, you know, places in the Middle East or wherever, you know, the Caucasus Mountains, whatever you get. And so you've got a nice map, but and what, what does this mean? Maps are for people who are lost, right? Mm. That's who they're meant for. They're not for people who, who are heading somewhere. <laughs> they're for people who have no clue at all. So mm. ancestry is, it's nothing but stories, ultimately. Remembering as we should that the old timers understood that our capacity to tell stories and therefore to speak was something we shared with everything that was divine because their best take on it was, looks like the world was spoken. Looks like every made thing in this world is a word and its word is the sound that it makes and the presence that it, that it exercises in the, in the scheme. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and look, we're one of the few life forms that get to make this kind of utterance, you know, and our, our capacity, at least, well, I should, maybe capacity is not the right word because the habits are so overwhelming. But what we could say, how we could speak, is the way by which our ancestry might indeed recognize us. This is the last thing I wanted to say in response to what you said. You know, what can we do? It was a question that you've asked. And every time I sit down to an interview, I get asked some version of what can we do. And that what can we do is an exercise in barely contained futility when it's asked. It really means there's very little to do, right? That's the answer. Well, I don't know about volume wise, but, but I have a very concrete suggestion apropos of ancestry, including yours, as you've mentioned it. And it would be this, your people were linguistic people, right? They were languaged people. And this sets them apart from other kinds of languages, not in an alienating way, but it makes them particular and distinct, which is what the word my ancestor means. It means particular and distinct. It doesn't mean unique. It means identifiable and not some kind of wallpaperish thing. So here's what you do, man. And this is doable. You isolate, let's just choose two, two languages that your people spoke. Some version of those languages probably is alive today. Learn them. That's what you do. Because I can promise you this, if there's such a thing as what you and I are talking about, and we, we're speaking here with great authority, like, but who knows, right? But let's, right. let's, let's go with maybe. Let's say that, that ancestry is a real thing and it pertains in the present moment. They might be able to get over the hump of listening to you speak in English and try to get the gist of what you're on about regardless because some other part of you comes forward when you're doing it. But if you really want them to be in on your life, you might consider the courtesy of speaking to them in a way that they might recognize. Because learning the language of what you love is one of the ways that you love what you say you love. Uh, that is, that's extremely profound, even thinking of uh, imagining ancestors, if, they, if, like you said, if they are around us all the time, to mm-hmm. be able to speak to them in a language they can understand. Wow. That's, because if you that's, don't, really, that's really if you, if you don't think the thought... You're going to confuse them with your confusion about, quote, God or divi- divinity or deity. And, you know, when, if we come out of a, a monotheistic environment, and I think you and I both do, judging from listening to you, then we know that part of our psychic wallpaper is that God is, among other things, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, right? That means mm-hmm. everywhere, all the time, knows every damn thing, and all you are is a lump of inexpressible goo in, by comparison. That's what we get 
from that deal, right? We, we certainly don't have any companionship with such a being or, and no capacity to approach in any meaningful way. But if you imagine, you know, the old stories, and it's not just the Judeo-Christian tradition that says in the beginning was the word. There's a lot of traditions that have this understanding. And we share that. Well, what's it for? It's to approach the otherwise unapproachable, not to get what we want. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is basically a thousand ways of trying to find a way to say amen. And amen means, man, this is past my ability to understand it, but I'm here. See, both of those things pertain when you say amen. Say, I'm not annihilated because I don't get it, but neither am I capable. You know, uh, Robert Bly, 100 years ago, he offered up a Provencal poem that he came across, well, kind of a prayer that was probably from the 12th or the 14th century or so. And very simple on this matter, it just said, God help me, for my boat is so small and your sea so immense. That's it. That'll do. <laughs> it's all true, right? So you <laughs> learn the language yeah. of what you love and you love accordingly. And you do it imperfectly, of course. It's not your, quote, mother tongue. Or is it? Or, or is it, you know? Or is it? Yeah. Or is it? I, and Because I, I've seen fascinating things with, because I, I do know people, not myself, because I don't speak Japanese or Italian very well at all. In fact, I speak other languages better than I speak my own tongues that I come from. So that's that's an interesting personal reflection point. But I have seen that awaken, almost like an awakening in the DNA. I I, I don't know how much you go into the scientific realm of it, but... I do believe that beginning to speak a language that your ancestors spoke for, for the first time in, in your life, mm. it, there's like a propensity for it or that your, your, your DNA activates and picks it up. And then mm. other beliefs and ideas and knowings mm. begin to emerge because there's something that was activated by that. And again, maybe that's beyond science or beyond, maybe that's more in the supernatural, but I've seen that happen in people around me, like uh, folks who begin to sing because I spent a lot of time in the Native American church and, mm -hmm. and in these ceremonies and folks who have a connection to that lineage and start sitting in these ceremonies for the first time. My mother-in-law, for example, I, I've seen parts of them awaken in a way that's so profound that it can't, it's, it's inexplicable. You can't- You bet, you bet. You, you know, the word supernatural, there. it just means really friggin' natural. <laughs> that's what it means. No, that's, that's what it means. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Otherwise, I, yeah. I mean, the meaning that you were invoking, would you'd have to say supra natural that means beyond right. natural but supernatural is just way fucking natural that's what it means <laughs> supernatural then i like that yeah. i know we're coming up on time here i want to make sure i ask you to okay. divulge just a little bit in a society that knows how to die well you know really just cutting to the point because we've already alluded to it in your descriptions about death and how we hold death as a western society i just want to hear a little bit about what that looks like because I remember being a child and really being afraid of death yeah. or at least the idea of death of, of a, of an end to it all. Yeah. And then at some point in my maturation, my journey, not really having a fear of death. And at this point with two young children, my only fear surrounding death is leaving mm -hmm. my kids and my wife behind yeah. and not being able to take care of them. Yeah. So I, I'm just interested in how you see death and what dying well looks like especially at different stages of life, if it's different at all in your perspective. Yeah. Okay. Use the expression a minute ago, how you hold death. So let's start there. You don't. If you want to get this straight, you can't use an expression like holding death or understanding death 
or even my relationship to death. Because first of all, it, it implies that you can do such a thing, that you've got the chops to do it, that you've got the the Teflon hands to do it or the the asbestos gloves to do it. But this shit is serious, man. I, I was there. Yeah, I got no reason to exaggerate the thing to you at all. I'm, t- I'm taking off the rough corners just to make it listenable. I can tell you this. Death is a deity. Death is a god, if you will. Death is a deified presence in the room. You see, there's no question about it. And when it's there, it's not the only thing there. But everything is transacted in its presence. Now, you could say that from a kind of small b Buddhistic point of view that, quote, this is always true. No, that's not so. Because if that's so, then I'm dying right now and you're dying right now. And those two kids you're worried about protecting, they're dying right now. And as soon as you stay that lame ass stuff, what you end up with is there's no difference between the living and the dying. And this is somehow supposed to be comforting, Hmm. but it's absolute ludicrous. It's like, Fruit Loops for breakfast. It's just, you can do it, but why would you? And it's the same Mm. thing with with making light of the realities of dying. There's a real thing called dying, and it's not the same as getting up in the morning with one less day on the calendar for you. That's not dying. I can tell you that. So when dying comes, it's a companion now. And the, and the, the kind of moral obligation is one that goes in the direction of what you could call radical hospitality, not tolerance. You know, not coping, hospitality of all things. Yeah, because this death has come to your house. It's not the other way around. It's your guest now, okay? So, and it means you no harm, but it means you. Don't be mistaken. It means you. It doesn't have the wrong address. doesn't have the wrong guy. It's you, okay? And this is its fidelity. Death's fidelity is it won't blink on you. It won't pretend along with you that it's not now, it doesn't have to be like this or whatever. So the first order of business is when someone comes to visit your house, I'm sure you do this, you inquire after their appetite or their thirst very early on in the proceedings, right? Their comfort mm-hmm. in terms of sitting down or not or taking their coat or not. or These things all count, right? You're signaling in a hundred different ways your willingness to have a stranger in your midst, So you can see the parallel that I'm beginning to draw. And then you inquire after, like I said, thirst or or hunger. And why do you do that? Because one of the things you're invested in is sustaining the health of the one who has come to call. This is exactly what you do in the presence of dying. You inquire after its appetite. So rather than understanding it as a ghoul, right, or as as a fanged hoodlum or, you know, a thousand other fantasies, you might imagine it as a kind of spirit in the world who's rarely welcomed. You can imagine what kind of job description it must be then to be a deity who's seeking a presence in the world. That's all. To be included in life in the same way that we are likely to include this glass of water in front of me in life. And I'll tell you very briefly, I know we're going probably over time here, but oh well. One of the books I teach in my school is called Beowulf, which is the oldest old English uh, document that exists. It's the way we know the old construction of of the language you and I are speaking in right now. And in this story, which is taken to be a kind of a ghost story and monster story, and and when they did a, what do you call it, animated version of it, that's all it was and so on. 
if you read carefully and if you've got somebody alongside you who can translate the odd word, which I was lucky enough to do, there's a scene early on when this, quote, monster comes down from the mist bands, as it's called, the high hills, comes down to where everybody is in a kind of convivial uh, hospitality arrangement, right? They're in the great hall and they're feasting and they're storytelling, just as you mentioned earlier about imagining how it might be with ancestors. And, and this being, which could and ultimately does burst right through the door unchallenged and starts to tear the joint up, puts his hand on the door. And it's clear from the collection of words right around that gesture that what he's doing is petitioning for entry. This is fucking heartbreaking to put it this way, but that's what he's doing. And what happens is the din and the glee goes on without him and it darkens his heart. And the story unfolds as a direct consequence of the living giving no place in the banquet hall for the rest of the story. You understand what I'm telling you about dying now by telling you that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do. Yeah, there's yeah. a million examples of what it looks like to do it. But that's my attempt in a, you know, a couple of minutes to give you a feel for, for a certain kind of hospitality that seems counterintuitive. But you know, <laughs> it, it won't kill you to be generous to death. <laughs> that's an ironic statement. Yeah, I like I that one, though. I know. Just to kind of bring a summary to what you said about death, at least for how I'm hearing it, is that a lot of the efforts we've made as a people to embrace or accept death is it sounds like it's giving ourselves more credit than we than we deserve because <laughs> we're, we're not we're not the we're not the the deity in the conversation <laughs> indeed we never are by the way <laughs> right but we do we do have a high opinion of ourselves often and frequently it's a hard and hollow and high opinion yeah that, yeah well that, said that's the sadness of it no i i understand what you mean but every time you hear the chest thumping, you can hear the hollowness in the chest, no? Mm -hmm. And we have pride where our heart's supposed to be. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Truly insightful, Stephen. I, I really appreciate this conversation that we've gotten to have today. And I mean, there's so many more things I would want to ask you, but perhaps for another time. I do have a couple of quick closing questions I'd like to ask you. And then, of course, direct everyone where we can go and find out more about you. Okay. So you ready for this? The kind of lightning lightning round style? Yeah, I got my finger on the buzzer. Let's see what happens. Okay. <laughs> what is one thing you've learned in your life you wish you knew when you were 18? Oh. Well, see, I'm going to mess with your question. And it's probably no surprise to you that I would. I figured you would. <laughs> yeah. yeah here, and here's what it is. If I, quote, knew it at 18, I wouldn't have been 18, you see? And then I would have lost the 18 thing because I got I had more at hand than an 18-year-old should have. You know, as an older person trying to attribute to my 18-year-old self some other chops <laughs> that 18 years of life can't carry. See what I'm saying? So, so that's it. So it's, it's proper, I think, to leave the, the life to come to its limitations, right? And to begin to accept that you, you couldn't have been any other 18-year-old probably than the one you more or less were, right? And you have some regret about it. But if you really deepen your compassion about that 18-year-old self, you can say, ah, the dude did not do the best he could. That's true. Even on a good day, he didn't do the best he could. But, uh, but the other half of it is that the best he could wasn't all that great anyhow at 18, mm. you know? And you can't feel that way about yourself at 18. Because it would, it would be this main, the same thing as basically hating yourself for your limitations, right? So your limitations come to you slowly. 
And there's some real mercy in you realizing, you know, the limits of what you're capable of. So you can walk around as a limited person and even be limited in your regret about that. Which I'm glad that you twisted the question the way that you wanted to, because I think that's a, a brilliant, a brilliant answer. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think that's what a lot of, uh, the, the, obviously the purpose of asking that question is for other 18 year olds or young men who are in that stage of life that feel like they're ill-equipped for that stage that they're in. Yeah. So I like that. I like how, I like the way you responded to that. Thank, Thank you. you. And well, they are right about being ill-equipped. I mean, that's the point. The worst thing you can do with an unconfident teenager is to lie to them about how great they are. Okay. Because wh- where are you going to go after you got the, the helium balloon of confidence inserted in your rectum and somebody, somebody th- pretends to do them you a favor. I mean, <laughs> what, what, yeah. how are you ever supposed to learn limit if you're a 15 year old incipient spiritual genius? How? No, there's nothing kind about that. No, it's, it's only mm-hmm. in a place where you're supposed to be all you can be that that sounds kind, but to the rest of the world, you know, that's like parental or elder malpractice to do such a thing. But I know in these rite of passage things, oh, shit, it's, it's the currency, right? Mm. The currency is to assure people away from their anxieties. And in so doing, to darken and to demonize the anxiety as if it has no place. But that shit's rooted in some real understanding. Mm. And, and it belongs. Of course, we're into another interview now, so I better stop. <laughs> but it's great. I, I really appreciate that too. That's that's something I've, that's been listened on this podcast before. So thank you for sprinkling that seed in there. Okay. Let me ask you one more. What do you think is the most important value to have as a man or as a human being? Oh, dear. Maybe I've said that for the last hour. I've probably answered that in a lot of probably indirect ways, but I don't think there is a most important attribute, you know? N- nothing towers over the other ones because if it does... It's a lonely, bloody thing and not to be overly attended to, I'd say. But you could imagine that maybe it's this. If we're living in the Anthropocene, as some people claim that we are, what does it mean? It means that we can't get away from ourselves. It means we've turned into the center of everything. And we're beginning to realize what a lonely enterprise it is to have life revolve around us. Rather, if we could reacquire some minor deeply dependent status in the arrangement, our capacity to have kinship with the world around us would immediately deepen, I suspect. And if I could have a vote, I'd be all about that choice, I think. Hmm. I I appreciate that response as well. And I echo those sentiments. Uh, I do think that would make the world a better place too. I think the world is a great place. It would make us better in it, is what I'm saying. There you go. Yeah. Well said. So last but not least, before I cut you loose, I know that your schedule, much like everyone else's schedules are, are changing hour by the hour, it seems, yeah. but I'm, I'm assuming you'd like to direct everybody to orphanwisdom.com. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to promote or speak of for people to check you out and what you do? I like what we did in the last hour pretty good. I'd stand by everything we came up with here, but <laughs> okay. yeah, that's one good one. And then, yeah, I mean, who doesn't have a friggin' website? So I, I even apologize to it to a certain extent, but there it is. And there's a lot of information there and there's a lot, a lot of allegations about what I was going to do this year. And between you and me, I'm going to freaking do it anyhow. You know, I, I don't know what form it's going to take and I don't know who's going to come, but I'm not that concerned about it. Once it was going to be a touring band with, uh, I don't know, eight or nine people, maybe it's going to be smaller. And I suspect what we're going to end up doing 
if we can get into your country because we haven't got our, our musician visas yet because of what's going on. But if we do, we're probably going to do these little pop-up events and they're going to be plugged in and they're going to be wild in their fashion. And they're going to be, they're going to come from the same place all these responses to you came from. And uh, I would say, uh, stay tuned because if we're, if we're banned from the enclosed spaces and the, and the civic auditoriums and so on, Hey man, there's a lot of outdoor places we could show up and take care of God's business in a troubled time. Like, like we surely are in a troubled time. So, uh, that's what I'd say. Yeah. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I look forward to catching one of your, one of your, performances, storytelling sessions. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember the exact terminology you used. I think there was- Nights of Grief and Mystery, we call it. There you go. I look forward to catching one of those. I've really appreciated all of your responses and just the the volume of work that you've done in your life. Truly, I, I you know, from from my heart to yours, I, I really appreciate the work that you've done. It's, it's inspiring me as a 32-year-old to reflect and think about my life differently. And I know that the folks who introduced me to you also felt similarly. So- Thank you. Thank you for what you do and for taking time to be here on the show today. And uh, I'll look forward to catching up with you further down the walk. Deal, man. Pray, well, listen, praise to your work here and to anybody who's been willing to listen to us. You know, mercy to your family and to your house and and uh, would that we continue and that we be spared to be able to do it. Truly an honor to interview Stephen and to sit down with him. I could have listened to his wisdom for hours and hours and hours. I'll be sure to catch his traveling show whenever it comes through town. And I hope that you guys go out and support his work, especially this work around dying and how we treat our elderly is such an important and pertinent conversation, especially right now with everything we're going through in the wake of COVID-19 and and just really looking at how we tend to and care for our sick, our elderly our disabled people in our communities, how easily we put ourselves and our needs and interests above those people without really tending to and caring for the people that we love. It's a really deep question. It's one that I've been deeply in myself in the work that I do as a physical therapist, tending to a lot of elderly folks and realizing that oftentimes when I see them once or twice a week, I'm the brightest part of their life and I'm just coming there to do some exercises with them. So how can we, how can you, how can I tend to our elderly, our loved ones, whose stories we know, whose lineage we share in a bigger and better way so that we create this as a part of the new culture, the new way to take care of our people all the way through the spectrum of life, all the way around the full wheel of life instead of when it's convenient for us. Big things to ponder. In the meantime, if you guys didn't hear me at the top of the episode, if you don't have a men's circle, join us inside the Rising Man Fire Circles. If you're looking to take your growth to a whole nother level and you want to clarify your purpose and declare your passage into manhood with initiation, with ceremony, then you can apply to be a part of our next Compass Initiation Group. All of this information is at risingman.org, along with show notes and links for this episode and every other one. So go check it out, risingman.org. Wherever you're listening to us on this podcast, please subscribe, please follow us, give us a like, throw some comments down and tell us what you think about this episode. We love hearing from you guys. Also on our Instagram at Rising Man Movement, please let us know how you're digging the Rising Man flow and and what you think about what messages we're putting out that resonate with the Rising Man message. This This is what we're looking for. We're looking for conversation and dialogue and to take this culture and community to a whole nother level this year in 2020. So be a part of it. Step up. And uh, go check out our YouTube channel as well for all of our Monday morning meditation episodes. You can check it out at youtube.com slash the rising man movement. 
We got video to go along with the Monday morning episodes if you haven't been checking that out, so go give it a look. Shout out to my Rising Man Power team, Rowan Tyne, Sean Offenbach, Julian Subic, Ryan Wilcox, and Mr. Mark Rose. I love you guys. I appreciate you guys. Thank you for working so hard in the trenches out there so that we can make this movement move. And to everybody else out there, thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all your words and support over the years. We're going bigger and better in 2020. Believe that. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.